Hey everybody, before we get started with this episode, I wanted to give a shout out to my dentist, Dr. Curtis Perry. His family has been practicing dentistry in Oakland since all the way back in 1946. Dr. Perry's dad was a dentist, his uncle was a dentist, and he's a dentist. A great one, too. I've been going there ever since I moved into the Pill Hill area, where his office is located, quite a few years ago. Anyway, if you're looking to get your teeth cleaned or to get some dental work done, check out his website. It's really easy to remember. OaklandSmiles.com That's right. OaklandSmiles.com Like I said, I go to Dr. Perry. My wife goes there. I've sent some friends his way before. It's always a great experience. Fast, friendly, you name it. I actually look forward to my dentist appointments. Anyway, check out Dr. Curtis Perry. His office is right at Telegraph and 32nd. You can find him online at oaklandsmiles.com, and you won't be disappointed. Okay, on with the show. You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. This show is about history, but it's not stuck in the past. Let's begin. Let's begin. Hi everybody, Liam here. This is the 25th episode of East Bay Yesterday. And so I wanted to do something a little different. A lot of the time I hear stories that are cool or interesting or important but they're not big enough for a whole half-hour episode. So today's show is going to consist of four shorter stories. The stories themselves aren't related. It's kind of a grab bag, so hopefully it's not too jarring. But if this works and people like it, I'd like to do it again sometime. There are lots of great stories out there that don't need a 30- or 40-minute podcast to explain, and I don't want to ignore those especially since I've been getting so many great suggestions. I've been thinking about doing an episode like this for a long time, but a few months ago, one of my favorite podcasts, another Oakland-based show called 99% Invisible, did something similar. They put out an episode called You Should Do a Story that was a miscellaneous compilation of short stories based on listener suggestions, and I loved it. They did such a good job, and you should definitely check it out. Listening to them inspired me to get cracking on my own grab bag episode. So here it is, volume one of East Bay Yesterday's short stories. Actually, that's kind of a mouthful. How about True Shorties, volume one? Yeah, that's better. Here we go. This first story comes from longtime Oakland resident Fritz Sparks. Back in the late 1940s and early 50s, Fritz would go out fishing with his grandpa, Frank Ditzler, down at the Berkeley Pier. Only they weren't just looking to catch regular old fish, and they were using some very, very unusual bait. I'll let Fritz take it from here. Well, it was my grandfather who was the one who would take me he would he would swing by on the way home from work, like on a Thursday or Friday, whenever it was. But he always had the head ready for us in a big bag, burlap bag, that uh, would be stuck out on their back porch. They had a nice house in Oakland, and they had this place that uh, would 
would give them the, the head, but he would then put it in a bag or have them put it in a bag. Okay. Before anybody freaks out, don't worry. Fritz is not talking about a human head. I used to have so much fun telling my friends that we were going to go fishing today with our horse heads. And, of course, my friends would say, what? What? You're going to do what? <laughs> Who needs worms when you've got a decapitated horse's noggin, right? We would take it with us, and he would put it in his car, and we would drive down to the Berkeley Pier area, parking area, which I can't remember too much being like it is today with all the restaurants. They're, what I do remember is they're like little embarcadero type and esplanade, you know, along the, along the water, but... Nothing big. There might have been a fish market or a bait shop for fishermen. But that's all. And then we'd walk down the pier until we found a nice place. And he had he had a, a, sort of a very small chain very that he would have hooked through the head itself the night before. And he would just literally throw it over the side. You might be wondering where Grandpa got these horse heads. I thought maybe they had come from racehorses that were put down at Golden Gate Fields, which is pretty close to the pier. But the origin of this bait is kind of unclear. From what I understand is that he had, um, he sold scales, and, and one of his biggest customer was Safeway Stores. That's where he got to know all of the butchers and everybody like that from his trade. And and so when when they basically would talk to him about what he might want, what he might need, whatever, he would always say, "Well, do you have any horse heads?" He asked that was sort of a stock stock question. And and my mom, who as a little girl remembers her father talking about this, felt part of it was that he wanted to see what the reaction was because most of the people would say, "What, what." If these heads were coming from shady Safeway butchers, it wouldn't be the first or last time that horse flesh was being passed off as beef. There was just a huge scandal in Europe about this a few years ago. But maybe these butchers just had hookups for horse heads and they weren't actually selling the meat, like, over the counter? Who knows? Another unsolved mystery. Anyway, back to the pier. As he carried it down the pier... I can remember always wondering, now, how are we going to get it out of that bag? Who's going to touch it? Who's going to have to handle it? <laughs> I remember when, when he pulled it out of the bag, it would always invite, you know, curiosity and stares from other people, uh, wanting to know what the heck that was and what, we, what was he doing. The way in, in my mind's eye I have this memory is that it would be run through the like the back of the neck, and it might have been that he he was a just physiologically speaking, it might have been that he was hooking it on the back of the jawbone almost. And I and I don't I really can't remember because I didn't look too closely. <laughs> I I had no desire to really you know stare into the abyss there and figure out what the hell was going on. But I do remember that that uh, he could just throw it. You know, over, over the side. He enjoyed the attention he got. He was a he was a fun old guy. Once the horse head was in the bay, Fritz and his grandpa would settle in for some more traditional fishing. We would sit there and fish for oh, 
well, maybe, again, you know how, how it is when you're a kid. It might have seemed like it was forever, or it might have been for just a short time. But we, we would do our own fishing with our own poles that we would have with us. And after a while, we would put all of our gear ready to go, and he'd pull up the horse's head. And I can physically remember seeing where he would reach in to make sure, oh, yeah, there were some eels in there. Let's go home. That's right. Grandpa Frank would reach into the horse head and pull out eels. Eels! I guess they had to burrow into the brain somewhat because that's the only way they were going to get purchase, you might say, of, of what what they were dealing with. Um, I, I, I think that had to be the way they, they had to do it. Fritz was just a kid, and this was a long time ago, so his memory about all this is pretty hazy. But there's one thing he's sure about. I certainly didn't want to have anything to do with him, and I certainly didn't want to even touch him, if you know what I mean. And even though, you know, kids aren't, aren't usually afraid of stuff like that, but they just didn't look good. I, I just felt like I would rather just sort of leave him alone and put him somewhere else in my brain, you know, as to what I was going to do next. But, but by, by and large, I would say they were, you know, size of a decent-sized garter snake or something. I would say that they probably weren't uh, more than 15, 25 inches long, somewhere in that range. According to the book, Consider the Eel, part of Eel's, quote, unsavory reputation comes from the fact that they are frequently present on drowned corpses. Ugh. If you Google any combination of the terms fishing, horsehead, and eels, all the top hits are links connected to this very famous book called The Tin Drum. The author was a German, Gunther Grass. He wrote it back in the 50s, and it was turned into a movie in 1979. The sounds that you're hearing in the background right now are from the most famous scene in the film. The main character is at the beach with his family when they see an old man standing right at the edge of the beach where the waves are breaking onto the sand. He's pulling in a rope from the ocean with, yep, you guessed it, a horse's head at the end of the line. This scene is really disgusting. You can hear the main character's mom throwing up in the background. And watching it made me pretty nauseous too. There are eels slithering out of the horse's mouth, its neck hole, even its ears. While one old man is reaching in to yank them out, another runs over with a burlap sack to collect them. I'm pretty sure animals were harmed in the making of this movie. I asked Fritz if he knew where his grandpa picked up this trick, and he's not positive, but he's got a pretty good guess. It had to come from Germany. Uh, if it wasn't from him going to Germany, it was certainly from him being German or having a German background. So he figured out that that's what they did over there, so he could do it over here. Fritz's grandpa, Frank Ditzler, was born in Ohio in the 1870s, and after he became an orphan, he was adopted by a German farmer. He wasn't in line to inherit anything, so his father gave him a few bucks and told him to try his luck in California. Land was cheap back then, and pretty soon Frank had saved enough to buy a thousand acres near Porterville in the Central Valley and start an orange grove. Things were going pretty good, but there was one problem. He really didn't want to be a farmer. 
<laughs> so when the San Francisco earthquake hit, he decided that there might be some opportunities up in the Bay Area. Frank used the money that he made from selling his farm to buy a house up on Chabot Road, above where Rockridge Bart is now. He started his business, and the rest is history. Oh wait, there is one other thing. What did they do with those eels after they brought them home in that burlap sack? Pickled eels. No, I can remember that. That's, that's what we remember. Didn't mean that we all liked it. Didn't mean that we wanted to eat it. But I do remember having pickled eels. Really? Yep, really. Fritz's grandpa couldn't get enough of them. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I remember he, he would eat it all the time. Of course he would eat it, yeah. I didn't even know that eels live in the bay, so I did a little research and found a few articles like this one from 2012. Here's the headline that ran in the SF Chronicle's food section, quote, monkey face eel becoming a star on dinner platters. Apparently the monkey face prickleback, which is technically a fish, even though it looks like an eel, is a hot item at fancy local restaurants when they can get their hands on the slippery buggers. Another article, this one from Bay Nature magazine, says that, quote, monkey face meat is fluffy and white and holds together well in a chipino and gumbo. They also say it's kind of similar to lobster and that Alice Waters of Chez Panisse fame is a big fan of monkey face meat. Anyway, I guess all this monkey face mania shouldn't come as a surprise. I mean... Eel is one of the most popular kinds of sushi. Fritz might have been squeamish when he was a kid, but now he adores the stuff. Yeah, uh, unagi is one of my favorite dishes, period. Yeah, unagi is great. But back to the bay. There is one other possibility regarding the creatures that Fritz's grandpa pulled out of that horse's head. Those snaky-looking things might have been Pacific lampreys. These are thinner and more silver-colored than the fatter, greenish monkey faces. And lampreys have that round sucker face thing going on with the circular rows of spiky teeth that just looks evil and makes you never want to go swimming again. Anyway, yep, people eat those too. They're a delicacy in Northern Europe, and according to one recipe, fresh or pickled, the lampreys are eaten whole with head... Guts, tail, and all. Whether it was monkey faces or lampreys or something else, pickled eels wasn't the only old school snack that Grandpa Frank enjoyed. I'll leave you with this. Bon appetit. The the first time I ever remember, I I had to be barely five years old because we used to have you know, like the old days, you used to have dinner over at their house on Sundays. And um, and I can remember the subject came up that Grandpa would order a pint of blood with his standing order for what was being delivered by the, by the uh, milk delivery. In those days, they had the milkman. And his order included a pint of blood. And everybody would say, what? Well, that's, uh, you know, we all thought he's not drinking that. Well, he was making blood sausages and stuff like that.
This next story also involves animals. It's just a short little anecdote, and it comes from Denise Enos. When I was interviewing Denise for the episode about the Emeryville mudflat sculptures, she started telling me about her family history. Her dad was always coming up with weird schemes to make extra cash. I'm talking about starting an underground circus in his living room kind of weird. I'll let Denise take it from here. My father was a policeman and he always tried to make money on the side. And he bought an organ grinder and he bought a monkey. And we lived in Piedmont and my dad turned the room into a rumpus room and he would go to the circus and the room was totally red and white. It had a ice cream bar with a little uh, clown that rode a bike across the bar. And my dad had a professional cage built into the wall for this monkey. And the monkey hated my father. And the housekeeper loved my monkey. And my, my dad bought the whole costume and everything. So the, the, the monkey was so mean, not to, my, not to anybody else but my dad, that we had to get rid of um, Joanne. So Joanne went to Fairyland. And uh, he never made any monkey any any money off the monkey. I'm guessing. No, no, they get no. He didn't. Just, I was trying to train him with the hat, you know, the little hat, and to put his hand out, and he would just you, you know, scream how much oh he and didn't let you bit my dad and everything. It was pretty funny. My dad was quite a character. He, I mean, I could tell more stories. My mom, he had my mom going to wear pink leotards and he got a goat diet pink and walked through the neighborhood and have your picture taken with a pink goat. I mean, no, my dad was crazy. You know, when you said that your dad was a policeman who used to try to make money on the side, the the stories that you just told me were the absolute last thing I was expecting to hear. <laughs> that is such a, <laughs> well, such you know, a those unique way to, to, to do it. Know? Huh? Oh, they really? <laughs> yeah. And my dad, I mean, he was just, oh my gosh. Yeah, he was quite a character. And then the, the the goat that they dyed pink, they had him castrated, and he died of gangrene. Oh no! So, oh my god! Oh my gosh! Oh, you know, our family's very creative. Uh, both sides of the family, they're artists. Moving right along, it's time for Act Three of the show. Act Three, as Ira Glass would say. One of the reasons I started this podcast is because I realized that whenever I would meet someone who had lived in Oakland for a long time and I'd end up talking with them for a while, they'd always have tons of crazy stories. The East Bay is just one of those places that's never boring. Daniel Williams is a perfect example of this. He started working in that giant post office building over on 7th Street in West Oakland in the early 70s. And he had one story in particular that caught my attention. Do you have any idea how many um, bullet holes were in the roof of the post office when they had to fix it? Did you get any sense of uh, how big the problem was? I didn't get an exact number. This was a long time ago, a real long time ago. In fact, if I remember correctly, I, I think I said it was before 1980. Because this, 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 happened, this happened before I got promoted to supervisor. The reason I was asking about bullet holes in the roof of the post office is because I heard from Daniel that the roof needed to be repaired periodically because of stray ammo coming down on it. 
that's all it was, was just the bullets coming down on an area, a large area, you know, because that building's really big. So that was a lot of roofs. If you're not from around here, you might be wondering, why would the bullets be hitting the roof and not the sides of the building? But if you've ever been in Oakland on New Year's Eve or the 4th of July, you already know where this is going. People shoot guns up in the air to celebrate. A lot. The roof on the post office is flat, so when a bullet comes down, you know, all all of that kinetic energy is going to be absorbed by the roof. The official term for shooting into the air is celebratory gunfire. And of course, it happens all over the world, not just Oakland, but it is pretty common here. I found reports by roofers of finding bullets lodged in shingles and occasionally fully penetrating roofs. Scientists have studied falling bullets and calculated that 30 caliber rounds can reach a terminal velocity of about 300 feet per second. The wind resistance slows down the bullet on its way back to Earth, so that's why it's not moving as fast coming down as it is when it's coming right out of the gun. But 300 feet per second is still enough to do some pretty serious damage. I couldn't find stats for Oakland, but here's one alarming figure. Between the years 1985 and 1992, Doctors at a hospital near Compton treated more than 100 people for random falling bullet injuries. And just earlier this summer in Stockton, a woman got hit by a falling bullet while she was cleaning her living room. This is from a KCRA news report. All of a sudden there was this huge explosion and something hit me in the forehead. Turns out that something was a 45 caliber bullet that blew a hole through a roof and an even bigger one in the ceiling. Fortunately, at the Oakland post office, nobody was ever injured. What clued everyone to the fact that there was a problem was water started leaking. And that's what uh, inspired them to go up and look at the roof and that's when they found all that damage. What did you What did you uh, and and your coworkers think about when you heard about what was causing the water leak? Oh, we weren't surprised. You know, like you said, it's open. One of the reasons why Daniel wasn't that flustered is because this wasn't even the first time a bullet came flying into his workplace. He used to have a comic book shop a little bit downhill from Mills College, and things got pretty dicey over there, too. After a while, you know, you get used to it. It didn't bother me much because I operated a business at Foothill and Seminary out in East Oakland. They call that Murder Central. After 16 years there, it just didn't faze me. I I opened up one morning and uh, Went, went to the counter, and I looked at the wall behind my counter, and there was a bullet hole there, right where my head would have been. Back at the post office, he had an even closer call. This incident happened on the night of July 3rd, going into the 4th of July in the early 1980s. I was getting off at midnight. I'm on my way out the building, you know, and the exit is right out there at 7th Street. As I'm coming out out of the building, 
see, we have a little uh, kind of like I don't even know what you would call it. It's kind of, it's kind of like what you would see, like when the when uh, the bulls come running out of a shoot in a in, in a rodeo or something, you know. But it's longer. You're like about about 40 feet when people come through there. So I was at the front of the crowd coming out there, and just as I got to the open area a shootout broke out across the street at Esther's orbit room in their parking lot and bullets started flying across the street at us. So I turned around, those of us that were in the front turned around, tried to run back in the building, but guess what? There's a hundred people coming out of the building. We can't get back in there. So, so it, it caused a complete panic and that scared the living hell out of me because I couldn't get back in the building and the, Bullets were bouncing off, off of the sidewalk around us. Another time, Daniel had just gotten off of work and was walking to his apartment, which was east of Lake Merritt. He told me a random bullet passed so close to his head, he could hear it buzz when it went by, like an insect. And it wasn't just close calls with guns. This happened one time when he was working in the international section of the post office, which was in an out-of-the-way corner of the massive facility. We were up there with, with the uh, customs department. We shared that floor with the customs department. One day at 4.30, we all got off from work, and we're coming down the stairs and the elevators, and when we get down to the exit, the postal police are there, and they're asking us, what the hell are you guys doing still in the building? And we said, what are you talking about? They said, we evacuated the building this morning. It was a bomb scare. They forgot we were there. We were so remote, they didn't even think about letting us know. One more quick story about Daniel's crazy post office experiences. This one isn't about bullets or bombs. It's about a different kind of threat, the Ponzi scheme. Some postal employees got caught up in it. That's how I found out about it, because this, this guy that lived in my neighborhood, his name was Ronnie. He was a, a mail handler, and uh, he he uh, came up to me. He lived he, he lived up a few blocks from me. He says, uh, "Dan, I, I know of this investment opportunity where you can make 400 percent in six months." And I said, "Well, Ryan, I tell you what. Now think about it for a minute. If you knew how to." make a 400% profit in six months, what would you do? Would you be going around telling everybody about it? Or would you be going around borrowing every penny you could find in order to make the money yourself? You know, he said, oh, well, I believe, I believe this guy. And I said, yeah, okay, well, you kiss your money goodbye. And sure enough, that's what happened. He, he, he was one of the victims in the Church of Hakeem. And there were quite a few victims at the post office. Long story short, the Church of Hakim was a scam that hit Oakland in the late 1970s. People gave a con artist named Hakim Abdul Rashid a total of more than $3 million. He promised them that God would make sure that they got paid back with plenty of interest. Instead, he bought a yacht, a Rolls Royce, and a bunch of other stuff and then he went to jail. Like I said earlier, Oakland has never been boring.
This final story comes from Bobby Martis, who you may remember from episode 9. He's the guy who sang the amazing 1980s hit, Keep On. He became a filmmaker after his music career ended, and one of the projects he worked on was a documentary about local rappers called Beats by the Bay. Bobby is more of a jazz guy, but his nephew wanted to get into the rap game, so Bobby was doing this film to help his nephew get connected. Anybody who's been around Oakland for a while knows that people with cameras are constantly getting robbed. Photographers, film crews, TV news people, Seems like every month or so there's a story about people filming or photographing and getting jacked for their gear. It just happened a few months ago to the hip-hop group Zion I when they were filming a video in West Oakland. But this has been going on for a long time. Unfortunately for Bobby, he learned this lesson the hard way. One particular day, I was interviewing Sugar T, who is E-40's sister. I was on a street in uh, Telegraph Street in uh, Oakland, and we had done this interview, and I walk out, and I saw my car had been broken into, and all the equipment was stolen. And I was like, man, this is some whack ass. And then um, as we're walking to the car, I saw the windows busted out. And then from the other side of the car, somebody jumps out. It was a kid. He couldn't have been, I don't know, 17, 18 or whatever. And it just looked like slow motion. I saw him uh, raise up his shirt and he was grabbing for a gun. And I had my nephew and some other crew people with me. There was like four people with me. So I was carrying my camera. People were carrying a bag, some pair, you know, a light stand and this, that, and the other, because most of the equipment was in the car. But they had just stripped everything out the car. And so they waited around to get the rest of the stuff. I was like, that's not enough that y'all ripped us off. We want the rest of the stuff. So at gunpoint, uh, everybody looked at the gun and then we just started running, oh shit. And then I, I saw my nephew was standing closest to the guy and the gun was in his side. And so I looked back, I saw that. I was like, man, and he didn't run. I gotta go back into the lion's den. <laughs> so I went back. You know, I had to give the rest of the stuff. But, I mean, because there's so many shootings and stuff, we were just blessed to, to just be not shot. And so the next day, I know I, I went to, like, pawn shops. And I was like, well, maybe they sold it to the pawn shop. And we couldn't find it. And, this, and I said, well, you know what? I hope they become filmmakers. Getting robbed did not stop Bobby from trying to film in Oakland, though. A few months later, he was out in East Oakland looking to film a sideshow, and then something kind of predictable happened. But then, something very unpredictable happened. Okay, back to Bobby. I was driving through the bay and I said, wait a minute, stop the car. This is the Black Panther building, look. I took my camera, I said, I gotta get this shot. Oh, shit. And I started to shoot, and all of a sudden, I felt something in my side. I was like, no you are not going to rob me. And so I turned around. Now, this was an older guy. And he wasn't old. He was just older than the kid. And um, I said, listen, I'm trying to uplift the neighborhood. What are you doing, man? I'm just, I'm just shooting this. I know I'm not from your neighborhood. I know I'm just, this is history right here. 
I have to get this history. And then I said, and I'm looking for some, um, you know, I'm talking a mile a minute because I don't want to be shot. I don't want to steal my stuff. I said, I'm just looking also for some, um, they're called sideshows, you know, cars going in a circle. And, and then he stopped and he knew I was genuine. I was just legitimately doing what I was doing. He put the gun away and then he proceeded to tell me where sideshows were. Go down here, make a right, and then go down this street, make another right, and you'll see some sideshows. So we ended up going to shoot the sideshows. So it, 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 was, it was surreal. Only in Oakland can you stop to check out a former Black Panther house, almost get robbed, and then get directions to the sideshow from the dude who's going to jack you. Yee! Like I said, this town, never boring. All right, that's it for True Shorties, Volume 1. Hope you liked it. I'm Liam O'Donoghue, and you've been listening to East Bay Yesterday. Hey, real quick, I just want to give everybody a heads up that I'm going to be involved in a few upcoming events. The first one is a panel discussion about old Oakland history over at E14 Gallery. That's happening on September 20th at E14. Tina Ramos, who you may remember from episode 5, will also be one of the guests, and some other really cool folks from Rado's Market and Specialty Foods will be there as well, and it's free. Check out the East Bay Yesterday Facebook or Twitter for details. Also, on September 25th, I'll be speaking at Nerd Night East Bay at Club 21 in Oakland. If you like the episode about the Emeryville Mudflat sculptures, you're going to want to check this out. Joey Enos, who I interviewed for that episode, and I have been doing some more research on the history of that crazy collaborative art project, and we're going to be doing a presentation all about it. It's a very visual story, so you're going to want to see it in person to get the full effect. Check out eastbay.nerdnight.com for details. Okay, cool. For this episode, I want to thank everybody who has been listening to East Bay yesterday, everybody who's been posting about it on social media, and everybody who's talked to me. I couldn't have gotten this far without your support. Also, I want to thank KPFA, where you can now find East Bay Yesterday in the podcast section of their website. It's called Area 941, and also Berkeley Liberation Radio. A few more shout-outs going out to Small Town Society, uh, East Bay Express, The Evil Eye, uh, my wife, Elizabeth, because she's awesome. Also, the Oakland History Facebook group, the History Room at the Oakland Library, Gene Anderson, Chris D. Benedetti, and Chris Treadway. And I'm probably forgetting some folks, so sorry about that. Uh, I'm still trying to figure out how to make this show sustainable, so if you know of any foundations or grant programs or donors that might be a good fit for East Bay Yesterday, please hit me up. You can subscribe to this show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or Google Play. You can also follow East Bay Yesterday on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where I post photos related to each and every story, as well as other events and other cool local history news. There are links to all those social media pages at eastbayyesterday.com. And if you like the show, please spread the word. Uh, I'd really appreciate it. Thank you to everyone who's already doing this. Uh, if you give East Bay Yesterday a shout out on social media, please be sure to tag it and review it on iTunes too. That helps a ton. Music for this episode was provided by Lee Rosevere, Jazar, TTK, Anatech, and Invisible Sounds. The theme song music came from Anatech. 
and I'll be back with a regular episode very, very soon.